Ezekiel chapter 20 will be our text for today. Appreciate Matt reading it for us earlier. Helps us kind of dive in to where we're at now. If you can recall back to what we heard, when we look at this chapter from Ezekiel, many things I think on the page strike like thunderclaps. The people of Israel, now scattered, have to come before God and hope to hear some good news about their situation through his prophet Ezekiel. It's not unusual when times are dire to remember to seek the Lord. I can count on one hand myself the amount of people in my years of ministry that come asking for direction when things are good. Rather, it's when life is difficult and uncertain that I get a text, a call, or an office visit. People want to know how to get back to the good life, the life that truly is real life. Unfortunately, the only way to uncover the route back to the good life is to understand the decisions and choices that led us to this point. And the painful and humiliating work often of picking up the pieces is a lonely and arduous endeavor. Here we find in Ezekiel 20, the Israelites scattered. Their kingdom has been swept uh, away, it has been conquered, both in the north and now particularly in the south. The Assyrians have swept upon Israel to take them captive in their own lands. They are now caught in a massive power shift that happens in the ancient world. As the Babylonians rise to power, they overtake the Assyrians and now trample Judah through that process and their advances. They have no capital, they have no temple to worship at, and seemingly no hope. So yes, the elders of Israel come before God's prophet Ezekiel. And what does he have to say? What would God say to us in that situation? And sadly, I think the sarcasm and weariness in the Lord's voice is unmistakable. Now you want to hear from me? Now you want a word from your Lord God? As surely as I live, I will not let you inquire of me, mortal, human. Will you judge them? Will you judge them? Fine. Then confront them with this. And Calvin's commentary on Ezekiel 20 stops here, and there's this prayer uh, that I want to read for us today. Let this be our prayer as we encounter this text and try to unwrap and unfold this drama that's happening in exile with the Israelites. It says, Grant, Almighty God, since the doctrine of thy gospel sounds daily in our ears when you invite us so kindly by your amazing clemency and stretch out your hand, by your only begotten Son. Grant, I pray thee, that we may be of a teachable and flexible disposition, and that we may sincerely submit to thee. And since your law contains so many dreadful examples of your wrath, may we be moved by them, and may we walk with fear and trembling and obedience to your word, that at length we may enjoy that inheritance that you promised for us, and your heavenly kingdom, by the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. First thing I want us to see today as we move through this text is that our hearts are indeed a factory of idols. Our hearts are a factory of idols. We're going to move through today by looking first at the text and seeing what's going on in this drama. It's the nature of a narrative and prophecy. And then we're going to take some of that and unfold it and unpack it for us. And so first, as we keep in mind the idea that we are never without an idol for some reason, God says through Ezekiel to confront them with this. And he begins this story that sounds probably familiar. It's the story of Israel. You see this several times throughout Scripture uh, in, in various summaries and summations. But what's interesting is in this account, it starts with what God did. Look at the amazing works of God in 4b through 7. He says, I chose Israel. This is election. If you look at Romans 9, he, he chose his people for his sovereign good pleasures. Because he wanted to. He then says, I swore a covenant. You remember back to Abraham and this covenant that God initiated. So much so that... He not only initiated it, but completed it in and of himself. You see, when Abraham fell asleep, God enacted the covenant ritual by himself. Usually, the two people, the two components of the covenant, walk between the animals together. But God himself 
walked through. He said, I will hold this covenant. But the God of the universe, let's not skip this part, didn't just choose a people, but covenanted with them. And then he says, even more spectacular, I revealed myself to you. I am the Lord your God. This is that covenant language. When he pronounces himself their God, he binds them to himself, and he claims them for his special people, and then so confirms his covenant. As God that is in relationship with one people group out of the entire ancient world, has bound himself to them. And then we advance through history, and he says, I swore that I would pull them from Egypt, that I would bring them out of that land, that they were enslaved in. It's the Exodus that we're looking at. To where? To a land that I searched out for myself. This is Canaan. It's this land flowing with milk and honey. And it's, it's certainly beautiful in of itself, right? It is the chosen land. It is the choicest of places. But there's no region under heaven to be compared with the land of Canaan in one particular point. There are other lands that have milk and honey and it's probably even flowing with. But in one particular point, namely God choosing Canaan as his earthly dwelling place. You see, since the land of Canaan excelled all others in this one respect, it deservedly was called the desire of all lands or desirable beyond all lands. What does this remind you of? Eden. Eden was beautiful. They had no need there, right? There's other places that could have been that. Eden was where they walked with God. You see, Ezekiel pulling this Old Testament, this law, this Pentateuch, this Torah language out from Moses is a dwelling place of God. And so if it is truly the dwelling place of God, he says to them in 7, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. To rightly worship God would mean to put away anything else, any idols, anything that they brought with them. You remember back to the valley of Achor, right, where Achan, after having conquered Jericho, took some of the idols and the silver and hid them in his tent and buried them in the earth. Then the Israelites go into Ai, a very small town. They don't even send their entire force because it's supposed to be an easy sweep of the city. And they are routed. And Joshua says, God, why? Why? What what happened? And he says, because you did not do what I said. You have kept idols for yourself. And they discover Achan and his entire family is stoned and burned. All of his possessions, his children, his animals, everything. And it is now called the Valley of Achan, Achor, Valley of Suffering. He says, but you, I... Did these you rebelled and would not listen? In verses 8 through 12, you see, but they rebelled against me and they were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. They not only rebelled, but they refused to listen. It's arrogant just for a child to simply rebel, right? It's a special kind of arrogance, I think, to act like they can't hear you or particularly to refuse to listen to you. Now that gets me riled up, and this is where I, a six foot three, 400 pound man, want to show you how your existence begins and in your particular case ends, right? You're going to refuse to listen to me. You need to understand, mortal, human, child, I am the law. You will know my name is the Lord when I go oh, wait. <laughs> it's not me, it's, it's God, right? They didn't listen. They didn't just rebel, they simply would not listen. And he says that he will pour out his wrath, and rightly so. You see, I'm supposed to dwell in this land, but I don't destroy the idols. I always see one of the most beautiful pieces of this passage and, and really what kind of drew me into this this text for this week. Verse 9, But I acted 
for the sake of my name. I acted for the sake of my name. That it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I had made myself known to them and bringing them out of the land of Egypt. You're going to see this several more times in this passage where God acts for his name's sake, and particularly by preserving the reputation for his name amongst the nations. Very little of this particular motivation has to do with the Israelites in and of themselves. His concern very clearly is for his name's sake that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations. See, God has swore to Israel. He chose Israel. He's in a covenant with Israel. He's told everyone on earth that he would deliver them and that he, they are his special people. So if they aren't any of that, what does that mean about this God? Is Yahweh of the Israelites so good after all? For the sake of my name, I did what I said I would do. I brought them out of Egypt. I even gave them my decrees, laws through which obedience would give life. I mean, he's God. He could simply and rightly so just command them to any kind of obedience, right? He has that if he wants to. He is God. He can say whatever he wants. But it's not, it's not just a command. He attaches a promise of kindness to entice them by his own fatherly indulgence. He simply wants to because he is a loving father. He says, these, these commands that I give you, it's not just to please me because I'm God, it is to give you life. It's to give you life. And yet, neither by command or kindness can he induce this obstinate and perverse people to bend to the yoke of his laws. He even gives them a special sign, he says, between them for all of the nations to see in the Sabbath institution so that they would know I, the Lord, made you holy. But if you did renovate us this week and outline this passage, you see very quickly another pattern instituted. They rebelled again in the wilderness. They did not follow my decrees. They rejected my laws that should give life, but now they will give death and my wrath poured out on you. They utterly desecrated the Sabbaths. And we see again, but for the sake of my name. Now, this time it's not total relenting, right? Here, you see some judgment. It's particularly judgment on the Exodus generation. The, the group of people that left Egypt, that were at Sinai, that had the commandments coming down on the stone tablets that were already purged once at the base of the mountain for having done the idol worship. Now they, again, will be judged. This people, because they rejected the laws, did not follow decrees and desecrated the Sabbath, they will not enter the land. They will wander in the wilderness until an entire generation of people dies off. We hear the story of the Exodus and the Old Testament and the Israelites' journey through the new land, through the promised land, so many times from the time that we're back in that room as children to we're here as adults. And I think we cannot miss the fact that an entire generation of people did not see the promised land but died in their sins. Why? Because their hearts were devoted to idols. And I did not destroy them immediately. I looked on them with pity, and they wandered in the wilderness. So instead, he says to the children in the wilderness, follow my decrees, not your parents' decrees. Keep my laws, not your parents' laws. I am the Lord your God, not these idols of your parents. Keep my Sabbaths holy. And they failed all of these. 
And even on top of these failures, they acted treacherously towards God. God says, when I did give them the land, then everywhere they looked and everywhere that they went, they made and worshipped an idol. You see him say that they, they looked to the hills <coughs> and there they worshipped. They saw this leafy thing and there they worshipped. Everywhere in the new land that they went, they worshipped idols. So he says, I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and for the sake of my name. This time you see mitigated judgment. We saw it first on the Exodus generation, now on their children. Their children would be in the land, but they would end up being dispersed. It would be dispersed. Verse 23, he says, Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries, because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were set on their father's idols. It, it, People read the Old Testament and say it's confusing. People all the time come in and say the Old Testament is confusing. I don't understand how it works. Yes, there are deep levels and layers to the Israelites' history, their kingships, the two kingdoms, understanding the exile, how the temple... Okay, I get all that. But why does God do what he does? He makes it very clear. Because they had not obeyed my rules. I heard Matt stumble a little bit over verse 25 and 26. I don't know if it's because it's shocking. Um, I want to explain it now. Verse 25 and 26 says, Moreover, I gave them statutes that they were not good and, and rules by which they could not have life. And I defiled them through their very gifts and their offering up all of their firstborn that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. That doesn't sound like the earlier pattern, right? I mean, earlier he gave decrees and statutes that give life, right? And now he's saying that they were, they were not good and they could not have life. This is where the text gets a little difficult um, if, at just a first reading. This is God being sarcastic, okay? The Israelites, through this pattern, have devolved to such a point that they are now using God's statutes, God's decrees, God's laws that were meant to give life and they are twisting them to justify their idolatry. We're going to talk about an example of this in just a little bit. But understand that right here he's being sarcastic. I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. Why? Because they took those and they twisted them. So th these things that I gave them, they twisted them for their own use, and now they use them to justify the idolatry that they are in. So yeah, it's not good for them. I think a New Testament way to understand this would be Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 1. Leave your finger in Ezekiel. This is what we would call in the New Testament and the church age, God giving them over to their sins. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does that sound like? Would not listen, right? For what can be known about God is plain to them. Rebellion. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men <coughs> and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So, you want a word from me? Do you do what your parents did? You do worse. You really expect to hear from me. You continue to devile yourselves with all your idols to this day. You sacrifice your children to Moloch. You want to be like the nations. Earlier when I was talking about the perverseness, the obstinate nature of these children of Israel, and we were talking about everywhere they look, they, they see an idol. When they go into exile, they start picking up the idolatry of the, of the land. And one of the gods that they worshipped was Molech. There's a couple different spellings on it. That's how it's said. The only way to worship this God is to sacrifice firstborn children to it by fire. There are two ways with which to have this occur. They have this giant oven idol of Molech with seven chambers, one for fruit, one for grains, one for uh, precious metals, and ultimately one for a small child. And you start a fire in the bottom of it and you burn the whole thing up. Another more common way was for the idol to be erected and for the hands to be held out, but not just held out at an angle. And there would be a fire at the base of the idol, and the priest would take the child, set it on the hands that are burning hot from the fire, and allow the child to roll into the flames. In this worship, there were drums as, as loud, way, way louder than I can play ever, just banging. Thumping, thumping, thumping. Drowning out any sound that you could possibly hear from the child. The Israelites worshipped this God. The parents and worship to this God could not cry out and could not shed a tear. Or else the worship that they gave would be turned back upon themselves, or at least so that they believed. But if they shed a tear or cried out during the worship of this God, then what was happening to the child would happen to them and their entire family. And so the drums served to deafen the crowd to what was going on. And so you, you want to hear from the Lord your God. I think we can understand a little bit where God's coming from. And so, they now want to be like the nations. Verse 32, What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. 
the past four weeks, we've sang a song, Let the Nations Be Glad, right? I mean, it's kind of the theme of what we're doing is for the sake of his name. Let the nations be glad. We want all of the world to know the goodness and mercies and graces of God, right? That's how it's supposed to happen. The Israelites don't want that at all. They want the opposite. They want to be like the world. This is not the first time in their history either. I mean, before exile, before they were even, you know, getting conquered, back when there was still one united kingdom, right? They had finally conquered everything, and they, they found themselves at peace in the land and great prosperity. And what do the Israelites begin to say? What is the clamor that begins to rise? Give us a king. Give us a king so that we might be ruled. Give us a king so that we might look like all the nations of the world. God says, no, I am your king. It is not time for you to have a king yet. I, the Lord, am your king. But give us a king that we may be ruled like all the nations of the world. God relents, and who is the first king of Israel? Saul. That turned out well. He tried to kill David. The king after God's own heart. The king through which the line of the king of David, king David is the seed that leads to the Messiah. Saul tried to kill him, thus ending any hope of the Messiah. Now we find themselves not simply wanting a king, but wanting to worship wood and stone. So that's, that's Israel's story. What about us? I did not bow down, and I have not bowed down, at least to my knowledge, of an idol, a god of wood and stone. Well, let's, let's examine our hearts now with that in the background. Let's talk about one of the major ways that they, they, they failed. The first thing is rebelled and did not listen. You see, compliance with God's moral and religious terms meant life and good fortune. The good life we talk about, right? Well, non-compliance means death and disaster. You can find that in Deuteronomy 30.15. This is the blessings and curses of the covenant that we've talked about. And gospel and kingdom particularly, now almost, I think, two years ago. We need to revisit that. Um, a very valuable uh, series that we did um, for helping give us a framework to process the story of the Bible, right? We find ourselves in covenant with God, much of it he... This is the same one that he instituted here that we're talking about. And in obedience, you find life. And you consistently then find in Scripture to not be obedient means curses, right? And so here, Deuteronomy 30, 15 kind of echoes that for us now into Ezekiel. But even five verses later, you see a blessed life flowed from loving Yahweh your God, obeying him and cleaving to him in Deuteronomy 30, 20. So this idea of legalism that seems to accompany the Torah so much, this, this legalism, this connotation of, of following the laws of Sinai as being drudgery, is, is far from what God is trying to give. This legalism is God's gift along with the land. His rules are good, right? They give life. They have to be lived up to. But I think as we've discovered in our own lives, and let alone in Scripture and in Paul's teaching, we can't. We cannot live up to the law. But there's one who did. I don't want to spoil it. We'll be talking about him in just a second. There is one who did live the laws perfectly and is giving life. So let's talk about rebellion. What are you doing when no one else is around that you know is against God's decrees and laws? Someone said that character is defined by what you do when no one else is around. That thought seems to pass in my mind most of the time. I don't know why, but it's been more than 8,000 times when I encounter a piece of trash. <laughs> I'm walking. Character is who I am when no one knows that I'm going to pick up this piece of trash. I've got high standards for my character. Um, <laughs> what do you do when no one else is around? What things do you think about? The things that you think about, that you dwell on, 
that you're anxious about, do they lead to death? Do they lead to life? How about this? How do you take the life-giving mercies of God for yourself and then turn around like the wicked servant of Matthew 18 and show no mercy? I pulled this from Paul Tripp in my devotions, but he says, you know, we celebrate God's mercy, but scream at our children when they mess up. We sing of amazing grace, but punish our spouses with silence when they offend us. We praise God for His love, but forsake a friendship because someone has been momentarily disloyal. We're thankful that we've been forgiven, but then say that a person who is suffering the result of his decisions is getting what he deserves. We bask in God's grace, but throw the law at others. We're simply not that good at mercy because we tend to see ourselves as more deserving than the poor and needy. And like the wicked servant who's been forgiven of a lifetime of debt and then turns around and holds someone for a year's worth, a day's worth of money and throws them in prison, we are the wicked servant. We often want to picture ourselves in that parable as the one who's being held for a day's worth of work. How do you rebel against the laws and statutes of God? What about listening? Calvin points out that God says they were not drawn aside by either error or ignorance, but because they were willing, unwilling, to, uh, sorry, unwilling to hear. When they were over and over again admonished as to their duty, God repeatedly to each generation and even in between that gave them his laws, gave them his statutes, gave, him, gave them his decrees taught them about the Sabbath, had a priesthood that's entire job was to teach the people these things. It wasn't because they didn't know. It wasn't because of error. Paul points that clearly out in Romans chapter 1. It's because they were unwilling to hear. How many times do you come on Sunday unwilling to hear? How many times do you go to home gathering, unwilling to hear? How many times do you read your Bible without praying because you don't want to hear? How many times do you avoid reading your Bible because you don't want to hear? God has been trying to show this latest generation that their wounds run deep and it could not be cured unless the hidden poison was carefully examined and extracted. There's a reason that God through Ezekiel, did not say, you, this generation, these are your sins. It seems unfair to us that he would jump all the way back to the fathers, right? Because we don't want their mistakes to be ours. Well, they didn't get better. They got worse. Many people think that when they've just lightly probed a wound, that they've done their duty. The stuff that we do in DNA when we are looking and digging into the heart. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a comfort idol. What are you going to do with that? I can't just confess to my wife, yeah, I'm a, I'm a comfort idol. This is, that's why I didn't treat you well. I'm sorry. Okay, well, it's too bad tomorrow I'll still be a comfort idol and I will not treat my wife well and I'll be sorry again. What do we do with these things that we learn? We repent. If you take today this, this talk about idols, if you take your DNA groups, and this talk of shepherding your heart. If you don't end in repentance, you're doing it wrong. We cannot lightly probe. We cannot just identify the disease. We have to kill it. Pray that God would give us ears to hear, that he would write these things on our hearts, that he would give us hands to take notes. And he would give us a mind that cares to review them and a heart that would follow after him in faithful obedience. Well, Matt's preaching on the past several weeks. Faithful obedience is the goal of what we do and of what we teach. What use is there proclaiming God if we are not living in faithful obedience? You seek words to listen to. How are you rebelling? How are you not listening?
The second thing is, is Sabbaths. It talks specifically about, because let's think about the decrees that God did give. There were ten of them, right? Ten major ones. They seem to be the only ones that we try to remember, and we don't remember all ten. <laughs> he gives us those ten, and he could have listed all of them as the failings of the Israelites. What does he focus on? You shall have no other God before me. You shall keep my Sabbath holy, right? Those are the ones that he focuses in on. Why does he in, throw Sabbaths in here? What does the Sabbath illustrate? Because he talks about it several times. And I know in my church life, uh, over the past 27, almost 8 years, I've heard Sabbath sermons maybe twice. We don't have a Sabbath anymore, right? Eh, let's talk about this. What does the Sabbath illustrate? And what is it, what is it typifying? The first thing is separation from the nations. All right? The Sabbath was unique to the Israelites. One of the things that he said it was useful for was so that they might know that he is making them holy. Well, how does a Sabbath go about making one holy? Well, in order to be separate, you have to have a mediator, something that allows you to separate from. And our particular mediator induces sanctification. The mediator that we have as a church is that guy that I was letting on to a little earlier that kept the law the whole 100%, right? Our mediator induces sanctification. The fact that Jesus Christ is our mediator, that comes from God, that is God, through the Holy Spirit, sanctifies his people. And so it separates us from the nation, it sanctifies us. The idea of the Sabbath is to lay down your ability and trust God to work through his Son and the Spirit. And so this allows the Israelites to know God as their sanctifier. The whole point is dying to ourselves and to the world for one day a week. Exercising self-denial. All of these things, all of those, dying to yourself, to the world, exercising self-denial, only happen when you depend on the grace of God. And so the Sabbath is mortification. It's putting to death sin. It is sanctifying the flesh by denying ourselves. Which leads us to the third part of the Sabbath. It's, it's rest. We need to emulate God in that and follow His pattern. But understand that it's not just a pattern of God. It's not something that He just did in creation. and something He institutes now as a separating factor. The Sabbath is eschatological in nature. It is end time driven. The, the point of eternity is Sabbath rest. So for us to, to just miss this idea of what the Sabbath meant, what it was trying to typify, is to say, oh, I don't really understand, believe, or I guess want, if I'm going to be honest, Sabbath rest and eternity. Sabbath rest is what we should desire. That's what our goal is. It's part of why we run the race. So for us, how do you observe the Sabbath? The first question I would ask is, do you rest? Do you actually rest? Do you take time to rest? Because in doing so, you'll realize that you can't do everything. Part of the point of the Sabbath is to help us understand that we can't do everything. And so to observe the Sabbath for them meant to stand apart from those who did not confess Israel's faith and to stand with God in His declared will. It was intended to express the truth that on every Sabbath day, the Israelite renounces his autonomy as a master of time and affirms God's domain and dominion over his life by abstaining from work and his own concerns. To rest on the Sabbath is to announce to the world that you are renouncing your autonomy. Sound like the Garden of Eden? You're announcing your autonomy as a master of time and affirming God's dominion over your life. I mean, the question I would ask to help us you know, clarify this is, does everything always depend on you? Not in a leadership sense, but for you control idols? <laughs> Do you have to, does it have to be you? Can you sit and be quiet? Does your desire to control or always be influencing the situation around you cause you to always be busy? Can you abstain not only from work, but l listen to this. 
your own concerns. It's not, it's not enough to abstain from the work because our minds are running, right? We're constantly worshiping something, and too often it is our circumstances. And for those who cannot take a rest, you are worshiping yourself and your ability to make things happen, or you are worshiping your job, something that gains dominion over you. So, for those of you that I'm speaking to at the moment, renounce your autonomy as a master of time. You, you, you are not. And affirm God's dominion. Trust Him in your life by abstaining from work and His own concerns. Which reminds me of Chick-fil-A. How is it that they do as much as business as they do and work one-seventh of the time that everyone else is open? Trust God. Now, for the rest of us, I'm including myself in this particular category, do you rest rightly? <laughs> do you rest rightly? I think far too many seek rest and comfort too often. But resting on a day or two or three or four <laughs> does not equal proper Sabbath rest. It actually indicates slothfulness. We should work hard and diligently. This is something that I had to understand that Right rest means being intentional about your rest, not whenever you have a spare moment, an hour, or eight. It involves resting in God, not man or things. We have to be intentional about when we rest. It can't be, well, I'm doing pretty good at work today. I'm going to take an hour. <laughs> Just chill. I'm going to make this a two-hour lunch. Um, and the house is mostly you know, in good order, so tonight we're just going to take it off. We worked hard today. Um, we need to be intentional about our rest and it can't simply be resting on the couch. Rest means in God, not man or things. So abstaining from your concerns, I try to talk to the other people who are always about their concerns, to abstain from your concerns does not mean a Netflix binge, okay? Getting lost in the TV, getting lost in Facebook or YouTube does not equal rest. To abstain from your daily concerns, you exchange your concerns for God's concerns for your life. Our Sabbath, for both types of people, should be about mortification. It should be about killing sin in the body. Resting in God's sanctifying work in our life to kill sin, enjoying His life-giving word, and then return to work set apart for a holy calling, rejuvenated in His grace. Does that sound like Saturday? for you. Proper Sabbath rest looks like resting in God's sanctifying work in our life to kill sin, enjoying his life-giving word, and then returning to work set apart for a holy calling, rejuvenated in his grace. I'm afraid that most of our Saturdays are spent worshiping ourselves or our families, our kids in particular. So are you rebelling? Are you listening and seeking to listen? Are you resting rightly? The final thing I want to pull from the Israelites that we talked about earlier is the issue of idols. The issue of idols. We said that when God attaches the Israelites to himself, he shows that he could not be rightly worshipped by them unless they bid their idolatries farewell. They have to form their whole life according to the rule of his law. Calvin says, Hence the devil will always find us subject to his fallacies unless God restrains us in our duty, until he appears to us and shows himself the only God. We see then the necessity for this remedy, lest men should be carried away by idolatries, Namely, the knowledge of the true God. See, it's the idols of the eyes that he talks about. Why does he indicate the eyes? It's because they were not impelled to idolatry by fear or necessity. Their lives were not at stake. Yes, they were in exile, away from home, away from the temple, away from everything that they knew. But for exiles in a foreign land, they were treated really, really well. Particularly when you keep in mind the history of the Israelites and the first time that they were in exile... In Egypt, under the rule of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they 
want that bad. There's no fear. There's nothing impelling them to idolatry. In most cases in exile, they were allowed to worship their God. There's few instances where we see your God plus something. So we have Daniel, right? Well, Meshach, Rakshak, and Abednego. Supposed to lay down. They're still allowed to worship their God. But also this one, right? So they're allowed to worship God. There's nothing pulling them away from Yahweh. Except for their eyes. Their own depraved appetites. They wanted and desired to worship Molech. Yahweh calls out the idols of Egypt by name, which blows my mind. They're slaves in Egypt, and they're worshiping idols. Most of the time in the circumstances of slavery, you don't become like your captives. You don't become like your masters. Rather, you, you cling to and fight all the much harder for your own customs. They simply were enticed. They wanted it. See, the good life means giving our whole selves to God. You have to form your whole life according to the rule of his law. You have to give our whole selves to God, following his decrees and laws that give life, real life. Paul Tripp says this, he says, His absolute rulership over every area of our lives is not a deadening law, but it's a life-giving grace. He is freeing us from slavery to what is not true and cannot deliver. He's rescuing us from serving what will never give us life. He's protecting us from seeking hope where hope will never be found. It really is true. His call to obey is a tool of his rescuing grace. He really does know how short lived our resolve tends to be. He really understands our wandering eyes and our oft disloyal hearts. So he commands our allegiance so that we will not serve other masters. And Paul says it well in Romans 5, 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. God's call to obey doesn't end your life. It is meant to protect the life that only he can give you. So again, looking at Sinai, this law that God gives is not legalism. It's grace. It's grace that it gives life. It has a promise of life. Honor your mother and father. Why? So that you will live long in the land and it will go well with you. There's promise attached to obedience. I think back to Matt, I think it was last week or a couple weeks ago, Matt was telling the story about not Daniel, but Rakshak and many and Nebuchadnezzar in front of the idol, and they're commanded to lay down and worship it, right? Else what? Get thrown in a fiery furnace. And the, the, the resound for most people, like, just, just fake it. Just fake it. Get on your knees, bend over, worship the idol. Just fake it. It'll save your life. My concern is, I think, most of the American church does this with God. I mean, if you don't fall down and worship on Sunday, then you'll be thrown in the fiery furnace, right? And so we fake it. We truly recognize ourselves as God, but in order to spare us this certain death, we do our duty of falling down and worshiping when the trumpets blow or the guitars wail, and we fake it, thus keeping ourselves out of the fiery furnace. I think the heaviest thing for me in this passage, working on a sermon on idolatry all week, is not fun. The heaviest thing for me in this that just keeps resonating is the holistic embrace of worship of God. That his decrees and laws are to bring my whole life into pattern and obedience with God. I, I was writing this. I think we need to quit going room by room through our house of idols, periodically sacrificing one idol at a time as we seek to placate God for this season of life. Rather than compartmentalize our idols and delayed sanctification, we need to burn the whole house down. 
Jesus would call that dying to ourselves. But too often in my life, I, I deal with an idol at a time, as I'm comfortable with it. It's time to, it's time to placate God. I feel him convicting me of idolatry. What's in this room? It's that idol. Yeah, I can see that in my life. Let's kill that idol. God, I will worship you rightly in this area of my life. I have 20 more rooms down this hallway. Burn the house down. Kill it all. Just be done with idolatry. John says in his uh, epistles, he says, little ones, flock, keep yourselves from idols. Stay away from the house of idols. Quit living there and, and periodically cleaning up a room or two. The second big thing I want us to see today is the rest of this passage. And thank God there's the rest of the passage. God will bring his people into covenant. God will bring his people into covenant. You desire to be like the nation saying, let us worship these things of wood and stone. It will never be. It will never be. First, Yahweh establishes his kingship. In verse 33 through 38, you see this little subsection where he's laying down the law. As I live, and guess what, folks? I'm eternal. As I live, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. Don't forget the ending. I will be king over you. God will assert his covenant. He didn't enter into covenant with Abraham flippantly. You see in verse 34, I will gather. This is a second exodus. You see a second wilderness when he says, I will be in, in judgment with you face to face. That is terrifying. In verse 35. See, I will deal with you as your parents. I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you. This is beautiful. This is a pattern of the kingdom of the covenant. Guess what? This is going to happen again. In the consummation, at the end of the age, there will be a final exodus, a final gathering of the people and leaving this land for the promised land. There will be a final judgment of the people. And there will be a final purging. So he establishes his kingship. He will be king over his people. The rest will be judged and purged. But then in the next section, in 39 through 44, you see Yahweh establish his priesthood. We have this example in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king. We see two of them being established here, and the prophet side being everything north of 33. Now he establishes his priesthood. He says, either worship me, or worship your idols. Don't try to play the middle. It sounds like the church of Laodicea and Revelations, right? You were lukewarm, so I spit you out of my mouth and vomit. God says to the people, worship me or worship your idols. I'm tired of you playing the middle. I'll give you over if you want. Or you can properly worship me because on my holy mountain I will be worshipped and I will be served I will make manifest my holiness among you in the sight of all the nations it was for his name's sake that he didn't do these things now he's going to make them holy among them in the sight of who the nations he was concerned about before his reputation his name amongst the world and you shall know I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel See, when Yahweh is our priest, he is properly worshipped. There is no middle ground. So this holistic idea I'm talking about of bringing our whole lives under the law of God would be to get rid of this idea of compartmentalization. To be the same person at work as you are at home, as you are at church, as you are at home gathering, as you are when you're with your friends. Why? Because the whole scope of your life is all under the kingship and the priesthood of God. I 
as a pastor to this flock, my concern for me that was exposed this week and for you guys is that I see in myself and and in us too much of this idea. I'm I'm going to bring this into into submission to God, and then I'm going to bring this into submission to God, and then I'm going to bring this into submission to God. When He says, "Lay down your life," lay down your life. Because for us, I think the idols, that we talked about suffering last week, the worst suffering most of us are going to experience in the American church is the sacrifice of our preferences. I want this. My family needs this. I think this is best. You need God. He knows best. He is the provider for your family. I, I appreciate that we want to give our kids more than what we had, that it's honorable but not to the expense of what God's call on our life is. What if God calls one of us overseas? All of a sudden, you probably sacrifice organized sports unless they're good at baseball or soccer. You sacrifice the ability to have friends that speak your language. Think about Noah's kids. Is that what's best for them? Would we judge Noah in such a way to say that that's not what's best for their kids? This is a little easy for me to say since mine follows me wherever I go. I understand that this is going to be a battle in my life, but I pray that I fight it now and not then. Why? Because I'm living with the whole realm of my life under the rule of God. Now this, this terrifies me, but also really excites me as we move down closer to 44. He says, you will remember your evils and loathe yourselves for them. There have been people that I've encountered in ministry that don't like it when we preach sermons like this, that don't like songs like Depth of Mercy because they're depressing, that don't like Ecclesiastes because it's well, Ecclesiastes. You will remember your evils and loathe yourself for them. A big reason I don't like listening to classic uh CCM, contemporary Christian music, that I was like drowning in in the 90s and the early 2000s is because it reminds me of the 90s and the early 2000s. When I was in high school, when I was in early college, um, it, the music, I like a lot of the music still, uh, most of it, but I, I can see the evolution of it. The problem is it reminds me of the time. And I, I find myself about every three years hating myself after the past three years. What was I thinking? What in the world was I doing? I can think back to when I was a kid and I was an idiot, right? A proper idiot. Um, I remember a conversation with my uh, parents when I was sub-fifth grade. I had these jeans that I loved, and they were torn to shreds because the cool thing to do right then was slide tackling on in recess, right? So just absolutely, you know, knees are gone. And my mom is, is ready to throw the pants away. And I said, no, please, they're my favorite pants. Can we please, this is the 90s, make them into shorts. Okay, this is when shorts are okay. Um, nothing in the 90s is okay. Uh, can we please make them into shorts? My dad's like, no, we're just going to buy you new jeans. My mom, in a moment of glory, says, Come, it'll be okay. You can't wear them to school. You can wear them around the house. It's fine. Um, you can keep the, we'll, we'll make them into shorts. My father relents and says, that is fine. I, in my infinite wisdom, uh, say, ha ha, mom won. Um, no. <laughs> my mother says, no, you can throw these, these jeans away now. <laughs> but you said, daddy did not lose. Daddy's the head of this household. He relented. And now you get to throw your pants away. Um, that was dumb, all right? I've learned better uh, from that moment forward to never say those words again. It was, thank you, Father. You are gracious and kind, okay? Um, that was dumb. I can look back and be like, what was I thinking? And I can do that with high school. What was I thinking? I can do that with college when I'm on track to, to you know, pastor. What was I thinking? I can see that in early days of my pastor. What was I thinking? I know it's going to come again. I'm going to loathe 
the decisions that I made and the evils of which I wrought. He says, and you will know I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake and not according to your evils. Praise God, how gracious is that that he deals with me based on who he is and not on who I am and what I have done. Because if he dealt with me remotely how I feel like he should, it'd be over. The song I really wish we could have prepared for today is rather complicated. It'll be coming in the future. Uh, listen to Felix Culpa by King's Kaleidoscope. Felix Culpa means basically fortunate fall. What does this mean? He says in the, in the chorus for it, fortunate fall. My sins are stories of grace to recall. It's a fortunate fall. I will glory in my sins forgiven. I, can we get to the point where we say, you know what? I am a sinner. Depth of mercy, how can it be? There's grace reserved for me. Can we get to the point where we in our sins loathe them as the evil that they are, but can celebrate and worship the fact that God handles us and deals with us based on His name and not off of that evil sin that we've committed? Because then the sins of our lives, those, those things, that story I just told, those things from high school, from college, early pastorate, marriage, these sins are now stories of God's grace where I fell, yet he handled me with grace. So here finally is grace. When, when we deal with idolatry, when we worship things that are not God and to the nations proclaim something that is not true, God gives us grace. And we don't have to work to be kings of our lives anymore, to where we worship ourselves. We don't have to carry the burdens of being a king and making it all work somehow. Because we've been gifted with a king. He has established his kingship. And in his kingdom, I'm blessed with every good thing that I will ever need. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, and it is the dwelling place of God. And in my welcome to his kingdom, when he brings me in, I'm included in something that will never, ever end. There will be Sabbath rest in the kingdom of God. And so I need to pray the dangerous prayer of, Father, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Because it's dangerous grace. And it's really the grace that you and I need. You see, God designed us to be worshipers. And everything that we do is the product of worship. We are by nature worshipers. We're always giving our hearts to something. And if it's not God then it's something God created, whether that be something physical or whether that be ourselves. And all of this takes place in the little moments of our lives. We've got to stop thinking Sunday. We've got to stop thinking identity Christian. That means I only worship God. It takes place in the little moments, and we need moment-by-moment moment grace. So when all of a sudden you get that text, your world isn't shaken. All of a sudden you get that phone call or that email. Life is okay. The moment-by-moment moment grace that God gives us allows us to keep ourselves from idols. And there's no greater argument for our need for grace than the ease with which our hearts fall under the rule of things other than God. It's really depressing how little it takes for us to celebrate mud, fly, mud pies in the slums. But we have that grace. It's ours for the taking. We have to live in that rescuing grace. You see, Yahweh's remaking of a worshiping people would affect a spiritual work in their hearts. We're talking about heart change on the basest level. And from their new vantage point, they'd be able to survey both the depths to which they had earlier sunk and finally the heights to which Yahweh's redeeming grace had lifted them. So you can say, depth of mercy, can it be that grace is still reserved for me? We have to bring the whole scope of our lives under the rule of God. If we have any hope of telling others about this rescuing God, this Yahweh that makes his name great, 
We trust him in his kingship and his priesthood to worship and serve him alone. Let's pray together and finish with some, some worship songs. Father, we love you and we thank you that you are the enactor of your covenant. Father, not only are you the enactor, but you are the enabler. And Father, when the Israelites before us failed so many times to be obedient to the laws that you gave, Father, you took upon yourself to be the one who would keep it. And Father, we look back at the Israelites as if they're fools beyond all fools. Who would sacrifice their children to another God? Who would burn up your firstborn child? And Father, help us realize that we are no better. Help us realize the depth of our sin. Help us remember, understand, and constantly be aware of the fact that apart from your grace, we are capable of nothing good. Every good thing that we might do would be to serve ourselves. And Father, it's only by your grace, it's only by your love, it's only by your power, Father, it's by your enacting this covenant of being king over our lives, of preventing our fall to idolatry, by enticing us in your loving kindness, by giving us the good life. Father, it's by your work and your work alone that we are saved. It's by your work and your work alone that we are redeemed and sanctified. And Father, made into a people all of your own. And Father, that one day, we will have a final exodus when we leave this place. Father, we trust your judgment as you sift our works, as you separate the sheep from the goats. And Father, as you judge us according to our works, and Father, I pray that you would find me faithful, that you would find the blood of the Son over my life and over the lives of the people here today. And Father, that you would judge my life by the works of your Son. Father, we are thankful for the redeeming grace and work of Jesus Christ. Father, the perfect law keeper who lived this life and died and was raised again that we might find newness of life and that we might enjoy the resurrection. But Father, help us lay down the things that we hold on to, the things that are terrible gods, things that can never give hope, things that could never give life, things that only lead to death. Let us trust you. Let us look only to you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.